And Lord, I pray that this morning as we open up your word, can you speak to us? Lord, as we see how you raise the dead through a word, how you've called us out of the grave of our sin, how you've made us new. Lord, may we realize that we were once dead, but now are alive, objects of wrath and now adopted as your sons and daughters. May you help us to take off the old grave clothes and put on the new clothes. May we walk in the newness of life that we have received in Jesus Christ and the victory that you've given us if you have defeated sin and death. And even in our suffering and even in the difficult times that we face right now, that when we mourn and when we grieve, may we mourn and grieve as if we, may we mourn and grieve with hope, knowing that death is not the end. For you have defeated death, and you are coming back to destroy it. So, Lord, come and speak to us. Open up our ears. Open up our hearts. Open up our minds. May we understand. May we be transformed, and may we look to you. We love you, and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, if you have your Bible, let's turn to John. As we're continuing our series through the book of John, we're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, verse 28. And again, John in his gospel is trying to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And the way he does it is showing us how Jesus revealed his glory and also how Jesus received glory from the Father. And again, his ultimate purpose of doing all of these things is to invite you in to believe and to continue to believe so that you may have life in his name. Now, now last week we, we saw how the, the intensity of persecution, the conflict between Jesus and the Jews are ever increasing. And this is why Jesus have moved away from Jerusalem. But what calls Jesus closer to Jerusalem again in the risk of being arrested and possibly be killed is the news brought by Mary and Martha that the one that Jesus loved, their brother Lazarus, was sick. And what we heard is when Jesus heard the news, he delayed for two more days. And so we talked about it last week. Like, why did Jesus delay two more days? If he clearly loved Lazarus, wouldn't he have left immediately? And we said, what we need to understand is that Jesus is under the directive of the Father. And also, if you put together the timeline, Lazarus has already died. So when Jesus received the news, because Jesus is God, he is omniscient, he knew that Lazarus died. And the ultimate thing that Jesus delayed because he loved Martha and Mary and the most loving thing for Jesus to do was not to remove their suffering, although we would like to see that happen, but rather to strengthen their faith in the midst of the suffering. And as Jesus came, he came with powerful words and he declared to be the resurrection and the life. The resurrection and life is not something that he does. It's not something that he gives, but rather it is who he is. He is life, which means that apart from him, there is no life. And so when death and sorrow abound in our broken world, Jesus came to defeat death. He came to take our sorrow into joy by giving us life. In himself. And when suffering and when death 
and sorrow leaves us confused with questions, we can come to Him. We can rest in Him. We can trust in Him knowing that life is only found in Him and that He provides rest for our weary souls. And so Jesus turns to Martha and He says, Do you believe this? And what we see is that in her grief, her heart still trusts Jesus, that he is still the one that can grant eternal life and can give resurrection life. And so her faith is this rich mixture of both personal trust and confidence that he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that he is the one who is to come into the world. Now, in our passage today, we're going to see who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And I think this passage is a little bit confusing because what this passage does is kind of invites us in to ask questions and invites us in to cry out to God. And what we see is this this mixed emotions of Jesus. We see that both Jesus is both angry and weeping at the same time as he looks at sin and he looks at the the consequences of sin and our unbelief also looks at our grief and he's angry and both weeping and even though he knows the end of the story he still weeps and he still comes close to us and he still intercedes for us on our behalf to the father so let's look at our text and see what's going on here verse 28 after jesus's conversation with martha Verse 28 says this, Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. And as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's just stop here for a little bit and unpack this. So obviously, after the conversation that Jesus had with Martha, she left And she went to go call her sister Mary. Now, what we see in this text, it almost seems that both Jesus and Martha and Mary are trying to have a conversation in private. So, for example, before Jesus arrived on the scene, Martha left everybody to go and meet Jesus. And after that private conversation, she goes back to Mary in private and says, Our teacher is here. And yet what we see is that the privacy that they kind of want, it fails. Because as Mary decides to leave and go and meet Jesus, we read that the crowd, the mourning friends, think she's going back to the tomb and they're following her to lend some support. And when Mary reaches Jesus, she's obviously more emotional than Martha. She falls at Jesus' feet, and yet they echo the same question. Lord, if only you had been here. 
And you can imagine in her mind and her heart have been stumbling, especially as she looks into the eyes of Jesus because she knows that Jesus loved them, that Jesus, she knows that Jesus is the Lord and that he could have done something about it. He could have healed her brother. He could have prevented all of this pain and all of this sorrow. And yet he did not. And just like Martha, we see that her heart is full of grief and faith as she, as she falls at the feet of Jesus. Now, before we continue reading, I, I think it is kind of important for us to understand this. What we have to understand is, is that even though both Martha and Mary's approach were a little different to Jesus, they echoed the same words, what we're also going to notice is that the conversation between them was a little different. So, for example, when Martha had a conversation with Jesus, Jesus declared to be the resurrection and the life. And so they were able to engage. And the reason why they were able to engage in this conversation is because this conversation was a private conversation. However, Mary was surrounded by friends and professional mourners. And what we have to understand is, according to Jewish burial customs, it was expected that if you had a family member that died, that family must hire at least one flute player and one wailing woman. So if you were really poor, that's the minimum you had to hire. If you were wealthy, you could hire as many as you could afford. And so we know from this family, even in chapter 12, we're going to find out that this family is kind of a wealthy family. So that means that Mary is surrounded by quite a few professional mourners. And so she comes to Jesus, falls at his feet, surrounded by all of these people. And since this was not a private conversation, this conversation goes in a different direction than the conversation Jesus had with Martha. And look at how Jesus responded to Mary and to all of these people. Look at verse 33 here. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. You read the text and it doesn't seem like the story is really flowing. But really what's happening in this text here? It seems like there is an array of emotions that Jesus is displaying. So if you're taking notes, and I think it's important for us to understand this. If you're taking notes, the very first emotion that we see that Jesus is displaying is that Jesus was outraged in spirit and troubled. Write it down, and then we'll talk about it, because you're like, I don't see the outrage. Jesus was outraged in spirit and troubled. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Neil, I don't see in the text that Jesus was outraged or angry. Rather, the text says that Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Okay, so, so let's talk about it here. So, so the Greek word here is not a very common Greek word used throughout the Scripture. It was only used twice, both in this verse and in verse 38. So what does this, this word deeply moved mean? If you look at the original Greek language, the Greek word is the same word that is used for the snorting of horses. 
So in other words, you can almost read it, Jesus snorted in spirit and was deeply troubled. You're like, well, this is just a weird translation. This is why the translators had a hard time of how to express it. But when you take that word, the snorting of horses, and you apply it to human beings, what that implies is that Jesus suggests that he was angry an outrage or an emotional indignation. And that's why if you look at your Bible, when you look at the fine print where it says deeply moved, there should be a little footnote. And that footnote says what? It says angry. In other words, when Jesus saw all of this, he was in outrage. He was angry. He was the snorting of horses. You'll never forget that. But then it also describes, not only was he in outrage, but it also describes that he was troubled. Now that word troubled is the very same word that is used in John 12 verse 27. When Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. So now you can kind of sense, what is Jesus feeling? angry and outrage and deeply troubled the same troubled distress of the hour is coming that same trouble in the garden of gethsemane where he's sweating blood this is how jesus is feeling now again it's kind of confusing we read the text and we're like okay I might not buy into that Jesus is angry. I'll still say that he was deeply moved, maybe a little softer than angry. So the natural question then is, if Jesus is angry, which I say he is, then at what was Jesus angry? Was Jesus maybe angry that he felt forced that he had to perform a miracle? We, we saw sometimes throughout the book of John that when people force him to do something, what does Jesus do? No, I'm not going to do it because Jesus is not going to be manipulated and intimidated by anyone just to show a quick trick. But we've already seen that in verse 11, Jesus was already determined as he told his disciples that this sickness will not end in death. Even though he tells his disciples Lazarus has died, but it's not going to end in death, Jesus has already determined that he is going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. So he can't be angry about being forced to perform a miracle. He's already determined he's going to perform the miracle. Maybe, as Jesus may be angry at the hypocrisy of these Jewish mourners. Well, we don't really know, but the text doesn't really cast the Jewish mourners and the mourning of Mary in a different light. It says Mary mourned and the Jew Jews mourned. And John doesn't really go into or, or shed light on the hypocrisy of their mourning, so I don't think that is it. So I think we have two options, and I think both options are equally correct. Some believe that Jesus is moved by their grief, and is consequently angry with sin, with sickness, and with death that's in this fallen world that has wrecked so much havoc and generates so much sorrow. Others also believe that Jesus is angry at their unbelief because they are mourning as if they have no hope, as if death is the end. There is no resurrection. And so when Jesus looks at the situation, he looks at the destruction of sin and death and all the havoc that it's wreaking. 
and all the grief that it's producing. And he looks at these people in all of their unbelief as if they have no hope. Jesus is an outrage. He is angry. And as Jesus is angry, we read in verse 35 that Jesus does what? Jesus wept. So if you're taking notes, the second emotion is not only is he angry, but he's also weeping. Jesus wept. Now, why, why is Jesus weeping? He can't be weeping for Lazarus because Lazarus is dead. And Jesus in his mind has already determined that he's not going to remain dead, that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. And if Jesus knows the end of the story, why is he weeping? It's like you bring somebody good news and they're weeping over the bad news. Wouldn't you stop them and say, hey, quit crying. Here's the good news. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, hey, quit crying, here's the good news, but he, he weeps. He weeps with them. And here's what we have to understand, is that the same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompts outrage and anger in Jesus also generates grief. Let me say it again because I think it's important for us to understand. The same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompted his outrage and anger also generated his grief. He weeps because he sees this life in this fallen world. He weeps because he sees the devastation and the destruction of of sin and death. Death seems to have the final say. From the moment that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden from generations after generations, death has always been victorious. So he's weeping. And he also weeps because he sees his friends living in this devastation, living in defeat because they don't know the end of the story. They look ahead and the only thing they see is grief. All hope is loss. And so Jesus looks at them and he is both angry and he is weeping at the same time. Now, I know what some of you are thinking because when we think those two emotions in terms of ourselves, that we think that ang- to be angry at someone seems to be inconsistent with being loving and empathetic. How can I be both angry at you and also loving towards you and empathetic at the same time? We're like, that seems to be contradicting. That seems to be a paradox, but not with Jesus. Because we see this throughout the Bible. Uh, when Jesus in Matthew 23, when he pronounces terrible woes over Jerusalem, later on in that chapter, what does he do? He weeps over the city. He pronounces judgment and he weeps over the city at the same time. Even when you think about us, when, when it comes to our salvation, the Bible describes us as what? 
objects of God's wrath, like Ephesians chapter 2 calls us objects of God's wrath, and yet in chapter 1 it says, even though in love he predestined us to be adopted into his kingdom as sons through Jesus Christ according to his good pleasure and his will. It's like what paradox? I am an object of God's wrath, and yet in his love he has predestined to adopt me as a son according to his good pleasure and his will. What is it? Am I an object of God's wrath? Yes. <laughs> what is it? In his good pleasure, he has predestined his love, he's predestined me to be adopted as a son? Yes. And this is what we see happening in this text. He is both angry at sin and unbelief and death, and at the very same time, he sees his friends and he weeps. And the Jews see this, and they're confused. Look at what they say in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? So, so in other words, what we see is two interpretations of Jesus' emotions, and both interpretations of these Jews are both right and wrong at the same time. The first interpretation, they look at the tears, and they see the tears and say, man, Jesus really loved him. Were they right? Yeah, the conclusion was true. Jesus did love Lazarus and his sisters. But his tears were in no way what the Jews imagined, for his grief was not a grief of despair like their grief. The others, they look at the emotions of Jesus, and they remember the spectacular healing of the man born blind and wonder if he can take a man who was born blind and heal him, which is unheard of, no one's ever heard it nor seen it, he has done it, could he not have taken Lazarus and prevented his death? And so they're confused. And in a sense, their reasoning is pretty solid. Yes, Jesus did heal the blind man. Yes, Jesus could have prevented his death, but he did not. And so regardless of these, these Jews' interpretation of Jesus' emotions, regardless of their motives, whether they were sincere or whether they were mocking Jesus or just confused, really what John is showing us, what do these two, Jews, these two interpretations have in common? Both of them are displaying unbelief. They're displaying unbelief. And this is what John is showing us. Their faith is not in who Jesus is and what he's revealed of the Father, but rather their faith is in Jesus displaying his power, which is a weak faith. And the reason why it's a weak faith is because constantly demands more signs and more miracles. And as long as Jesus is performing the signs and the miracles, they believe. But it's not in who he is and what he's revealed of the Father. And here is why also I say that Jesus is angry at sin and unbelief, because as these Jews are displaying unbelief, look at verse 38 quickly. Then Jesus deeply moved again. There's our snorting word. 
Jesus deeply snorted again. What does that mean? He sees their unbelief, and he's in outrage. He is angry. Why? Because they're still not getting it. But here's the thing that's just so incredible here. Jesus sees the devastation of sin. He sees the devastation of death. He sees their grief. They're grieving as if they have no hope. He sees their unbelief. And what does he do? He doesn't say, I'm done with you fools. But he presses in. He moves closer. And in his compassion, he goes to the tomb and he makes an unthinkable request. Let's look at verse 38. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So regardless of these people's unbelief, Jesus in his compassion moves closer and he commands the stone to be rolled away. You can imagine Martha. She's horrified. Her brother has been dead four days, which means decay has already set in. The body is decaying. There is a terrible odor. Why? Because he's been dead four days. And Jesus looks at her, and in verse 40, he reminds her by a rhetorical question, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? What does that mean? Well, I, I think... First of all, in the question, Jesus is summarizing what he's already promised in the previous verses, verses 23 to 26, where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And everyone who lives and, be lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? In other words, what Jesus is saying is to raise somebody to life that has died is a revelatory act. It is a manifestation of God's glory in Jesus Christ. So this question that he's asking should not be implied that somehow he is promising that he would raise Lazarus immediately, but if Martha herself confessed that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the resurrection and the life, that even in the face of this death he is to be trusted, for he will do nothing other than display the glory of God. And this is what's going on. And despite this taboo request, the stone is rolled away. And look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Like, I think it's really interesting that Jesus prayed. 
I don't think Jesus had to pray in order to raise Lazarus from the dead. So then why did he pray? That's a good question. What's the significance of him praying? And really what's happening is Jesus in his prayer really is a remarkable prayer for several reasons. First of all, it shows us the intimacy between Jesus and the Father. He relates to God as his Father as he does in all of his prayers. But the second thing we can also learn is Jesus, his prayer assumes that he's already asked the Father to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so all he has to do is just simply thank the Father for the answer the Father has already given him. Now, let me stop here because I know what some of you are thinking and you're wrong, okay? The keys to your prayers being answered is not you just simply thanking God and then he'll give it to you. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here? Jesus can only do what the Father tells him to do. And because he is in line with the Father, and he and the Father is already determined for Lazarus to be raised, he doesn't ask God, can you raise Lazarus, but rather thank God for it. So it doesn't mean, it's, not, it's a bad application for you to say, well, the reason why God's not answering my prayers, I should stop asking and in faith just thank him, and then all of it's going to happen. It's bad interpretation. Because again, look at the text here. Why is Jesus praying? Why is he praying out loud? He even says it for the benefit of who? For the benefit of the crowd so that they can believe that God has truly sent him. Which leads me to the third significance of this prayer. It is a public nature of his prayer, not to show off to the crowd, but rather to draw the crowd in to show them the intimacy between the Father and the Son. And this prayer demonstrates the Son's obedience to the Father's will that as the Son asks, the Father grants. And the ultimate purpose is so that the people will believe that Jesus was truly sent by God himself. And after Jesus prayed, he lifted up his voice and he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of that grave. And as Lazarus walked out of the tomb, the glory of God was on display. Think about this, this Jesus who was both in outrage and wept with compassion for his friends, was so much more. Because with a word, death obeyed. Like, I think we need to think of the significance here and not miss this. Here's the reality. All of us are going to die. You know what death's record is before Jesus' resurrection? He's always won. There's no way of escaping it. Death will always be victorious. And what does Jesus do? With a word, death obeys him. And what that shows us, if Jesus, with a word, death obeys him, 
That means now Jesus has authority over death, which means he can clearly and easily defeat death. And he is going to defeat death, and he's going to have the last say over death by what? By dying. And as he dies, he will not remain dead, but he will be raised, showing his power and his authority over death forever. Now, two applications, and then we'll wrap it up. The first application, if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. Even though Jesus knows the end of the story, their story, and he knows the end of our story, he knows in that story he knew there was going to be a time when he is going to defeat sin and death, And in our story, after the resurrection, he knows that there's going to be a time where he is going to destroy sin and death forever. And he knows that in our pain, at times, we are overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. And what does Jesus do? He moves towards us in compassion. He is motivated by his love for us. He sees us. He comes to us. He is working for us. And as we're walking through our lives, we can rest in this knowledge that no matter what we're facing, Jesus is the answer. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our hope. He is our peace. He is our rest. Hope is found in him. He is working for us, and while he is working, we can wait. And he sees our struggles, he sees our pain, and we can rest in the fact that he is faithful, he is steadfast, he is true. We can come and believe in him, regardless of what we're experiencing in this life. And this is what he's showing to them. He's the resurrection and life. He is the answer to everything that we will ever need or want. And he's inviting these people to come in. And the same for us. No matter what you are experiencing, no matter what you are going through or what you've gone through or what you are going to go through, he is the answer. Second application, and I think really this is the main point of the story if you're taking notes, is this. Jesus calls his own out of the grave of their sin. He calls his own out of the grave of their sin. Let me explain this for you for a little bit, and and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you do, but the last time I checked, dead people can't hear. Like, Dead people are dead. They can't hear anything. So why did Jesus raise him up with a voice? Here's what's going on in the story. It is symbolic to the divine calling of God of raising up the dead. Those who are dead in their sins and making them alive. 
because this is how the Bible describes us. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're just going to read the passage. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach on it because that will be another two days. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 1. Don't, don't worry, we'll just quickly read it. This is how Paul describes us. I, I just don't want to say these things. I want to show you where it says so in the words so you can believe it for yourself. Ephesians 2 verse 1. It's right, right after Galatians before Philippians, okay? Ephesians 2 verse 1, again, Paul's writing it to the churches in Ephesus. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. Who were you? You were dead in your sins. And then Paul includes himself. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. This is the bad news. We were dead in our sins. We lived carrying out the inclinations of our thoughts and our flesh and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Which means all of us were dead under wrath carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. That's the reality. That is us in our graves. But look at verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us what? Made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. In other words, what's Paul describing here? He is describing the story of Lazarus being dead in his sins and Jesus calling him out, making him alive in himself. This is who we were. We were dead in the grave in the trespasses of our sins and the divine calling of calling us out of it made us alive. He also raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavens in Christ Jesus. That's verse 6. Verse 7, so that... In the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. But it doesn't stop. Verse 11 and we're, verse 10, then we're done. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. If you want a beautiful picture of the gospel, and if somebody asks you, what is the gospel? I implore you, memorize Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Because what does it do? It shows us the awful news that we were dead and our trespasses and sins. We were objects of wrath. And the only thing we were doing was obedient to the ruler of the power of the air, living out in our flesh and in our inclinations, the evil that we're in. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love he had for us, did what? Made us alive in Christ Jesus. And then he's reminding us it is not through good works, but rather by grace through faith so that no one may boast.
And then verse 10 is my favorite part. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. In other words, because of Jesus Christ, we are no longer dead, but we are alive. And we are his workmanship, created in Christ to do what? For good works. God called us out of the graves of our sin. But for some of you, why are you going back into that grave? Why are you still walking with your dead clothes on? Did he not make you alive? Did he not call you out of that grave? Take off the old grave clothes. Put on the new clothes that you have in Jesus Christ, a.k.a. stop sinning and pursue holiness unless you are not made alive in Jesus Christ. And this is the gospel message. Why can we pursue holiness? Why can we do good works? Why can we take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes? Because we've been made alive in Christ Jesus. And this is not your work. It is his work. You are his workmen, created for good works. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. Thank you that you were the one who called us out of the graves of our sin. We were dead and you made us alive. We were objects of wrath, and yet because of your mercy and your great love that you had for us, you did not give us what we deserved. You gave us life. You called us, and you made us new. And Lord, for some of us, we are still continuing in our sin, wanting to go back into that grave, walking around with our old grave clothes, and Lord, for those who are doing that, can you remind them that they've been made alive in Christ? They're no longer in the tomb? That you've done, began a good work? Can you help them to repent? Can you help them to turn to you? Can you help them to walk in obedience? And Lord, for those who are still dead in their sins, those who have not believed, those who are still objects of wrath, can you call them out? Can you open up their eyes? Can you help them to recognize the reality of their condition and that they need a Savior and that you are the only Savior? Please, Lord, we beg you, open up eyes, save them, call them out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get to sit at the table, we are reminded of the work that he has done. His body was given to us. His blood was shed for us. That calling out of the grave was no cheap work. It was a costly work. It was a complete work, a sufficient work that Jesus had to die on our behalf. And so when we come and when we sit at the table, we are reminded of this wonderful calling that we have received, 
that we were once dead but now made alive because he lived a life we could not live and he died a death we were supposed to die. He died in our place. And as we distribute these elements, like use this as a time to be grateful for the calling that you have received. Use this as a time to examine, like, am I, am I still walking with my grave clothes? Am I walking in the newness of life that I have received? Am I overwhelmed with the incredible grace he's lavished on me? Think about those realities. Meditate upon it as you're receiving the, the body and the blood. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. What a wonderful calling we've received that as we were dead in our sins, objects of wrath, because of his great mercy and great love that he called for us, that he had for us, made us alive in Christ Jesus, who died on our behalf. His body was given to us, eat it in remembrance of him. His blood was shed for us. The new covenant we have in him. Drink it in remembrance of him. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace and the love that you have lavished upon us. And even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler, the power of the air, we were objects of your wrath, and yet you made us alive in Christ Jesus. Thank you for your body that was given to us, your blood that was shed for us. Lord, help us because of this incredible gift that's been given to us. Help us to pursue holiness in gratitude of this incredible gift as your workmanship created for good works, not to earn anything, but because we have received everything. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let us worship our King.